and getting answers from you. Because we are very much nowadays in a conversation among ourselves and with the world. And the results of that conversation will lead us into our future. So here's what I think is one of the important aspects of that conversation. So I'm going to ask and you answer. How is it that the world sees Christians today? How is it that the world sees the church? That people who are out there, not in here among us, how do they perceive the church today? How's that? Fanatics. Is that what you said? We're fanatics. Okay. And uh, if you watch the National Football League, you will know that not everybody there is completely connected with reality while the game is going on. Some of them are just fanatical. Okay, so the world sees us as a little bit dislodged from reality, as fanatics. How else? Weak-minded. Weak-minded, like unreasoning kind of... Oh, we need a crutch. We got We just kind of get okay, dragged along in maybe unreasonable kind of thing where we need something and we reach out to something that's not even real. Oh, very good, very good insight. What were you saying, Grace? They see us as dumb, unintelligent, unthinking, irrational. Okay. Ah, we are brainwashed. It's good. It's good to have a clean brain. Just, just saying. I'm sorry. Legalistic. Yeah, we make a bunch of rules to follow, and if you don't follow the rules, you don't fit in with us, right? Okay. How? We are oddballs. Okay. Scripture calls us holy. That's the same thing. But oddballs. Anything else? Judgmental. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, yeah, we have nothing to do with the world, really. We just kind of isolate and get together among ourselves every once in a while for whatever it is that we do. Okay, anybody else? What, what did Gina say? Oh. You are exactly right, Gina. You are exactly right. The world sees us as hypocrites. They see us... Think, think, of, think of what's going on these days. I mean, you got the whole at thing, right? Me too. Right? And, and um, wow, there's just so many things going on out there today in which we are seen as the antithesis of our culture. We are seen as the ones who support male dominance over women, right? So we're socially outcast because of that. We are the ones who uh, have brought this white man's religion into the world, and so we are seen as white and privileged. Not all of us, because, hey, 
God draws people from every tribe and nation and language, right? But nonetheless, those of us who are not white and still worship the Lord are seen as brainwashed by the white people. So that's, that's our culture. That's the world in which we live. Uh, how else? Um, unthinking, right? Irrational, unthinking. Uh, see us as backwards. Forget the fact that the whole scientific community is built on principles established by Scripture and by godly men. That doesn't matter. We are the ones who are irrational, unthinking. Um, anything else? Closed-minded. Yeah, we. What's that? Closed-minded and hateful. Those kind of things. Those things kind of go together with the whole judgmental thing. Um, yeah, that, that's how the world sees us. So why does the world see us that way? Why does the world see us that way? Yes. Okay. The media or personal experience? Two really big factors. I'll talk about them in a moment. Anybody else? Somebody here had an idea. Why does the world see us the way they do? I'm sorry, say it again. Because the enemy of our soul wants them to see us that way. That'll actually stop them from hearing the gospel. Yeah, hold on to that one. That's a big one right there. And what was that over here? Yeah, they they don't really understand. I mean, Scripture says there's a veil over their eyes, but I'm, it's not time to paint out there. It's, it's time to understand in here. So why else does the world see us the way they do? Our values don't change over time. Ah. That is like not low in priority. That is high in priority, but foundation. That is a foundation of why the world sees us the way they do. That the insight there is incredibly deep. Yes. Ah, it's predicted. It's predicted that this will be the case. This is no surprise to God. Okay. Any other quick ones before I move on to the third and last question? Yeah, that is kind of messed up, isn't it? Is that what you said? That's, oh, oh mess, don't mess with my stuff. That's it, okay. It is kind of messed up to say, don't mess with my stuff, um, especially when you're talking to God. Uh, so, yeah, those are all very real reasons why the world sees us that way. So here's the last question. Are we like what? They see? Are we really like that? 
Yes. Are we really like that? I have one yes. Are there any no's? Sometimes. All right, we've got a maybe in there. Yes, no, maybe. Okay. Yes and or no. Good, we're all over. Actually, that, I mean, we've hit it all, right? From yes to no to everywhere in between, we've already hit that in just three responses. But that's really true. It's really true. As you look at different aspects of the body of Christ in the world, that is, as you look out and you see the church, you'll find all of the things that the world identifies Christians as being. Not necessarily in every place you look, but they're all out there. In some places, they're not. Some places, like here, in fact, every place, just like here, has some things about us that are true and really exist the way the world sees us. And there are other things that are not true. We don't exist in every way the way the world sees us. Well, what did I say I would, I would address? What did I say I would address that, that you raised? Because I don't want to let it go. I don't want to let it go. Well, we'll have to get it in the body of the message. How many are sitting here wondering, what in the world does that have to do with Psalm 48? Good thinking. Good thinking. There's one person out there who's drawing the connections. Some of us may have completely flushed it out and gone like, he's so far over here, how could he possibly get back over there? Well, I just connected it for us. So. And uh, by the way, there is a second passage of Scripture we're going to be looking at today. And combining the two and looking at them along with looking at this whole thing of how the world perceives us. That second passage is 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. You may recall that I recently did a message on this passage when I commended you for being living stones, for allowing God to live through you to work for the continuation of the ministry here while we're in this transitional phase. And I said, wow, we're really living that out. That's awesome. We are built together into a place where God is worshipped and every one of us does his part and fits into the whole. That's an awesome thing. But like so many other places in Scripture, that's not the whole story of 1 Peter 2. There's more. There's such great depth of meaning. That's what I love about Scripture and about God. God reveals himself in Scripture, and he is so deep that we cannot exhaust what he has revealed about himself in any passage of Scripture. Could we spend the rest of our life exploring John 3.16? Absolutely. 
We can never fathom the depth of God's love. There's no place in Scripture that we can go and say, I've got that part down. God will always reveal something. So, I'm calling this message, Living Stones, semicolon, Living Temple, semicolon, Holy Priesthood. Keep thinking about how the world sees us, how we really are, and all of those ideas. Living stones, living temple, and holy priesthood. As we go back to Psalm 48 and begin to look at it in depth here. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2. I've paraphrased the translation in order for it to make a little more sense. And I believe that this captures the sense of of what is meant there. Psalm 48, verses 1 and 2. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God is his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. What this is talking about is the mountain, the temple mount, Mount Zion. That's the place where tradition has it. Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son, and the angel stopped him. This is the place where it is... uh, Actually, that same rock where Abraham is said to have been ready to sacrifice his son. This is the same place that the Holy of Holies was placed when the temple was built. Before that, when when the tabernacle was in the city and David was ready to build the temple for the Lord. This is the same place. It's that place that God chose to cause his name to dwell. And if we remember the Ark of the Covenant, God chose to limit his presence right to that space. It's a little bigger than a basketball, right above the mercy seat, in between the two cherubim, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God chose to cause his glory to dwell, both in the tabernacle in the wilderness and in the temple when it was first built. Things have changed since then. Actually, let's look at 1 Peter now. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a personal, as a spiritual house, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so Mount Zion, the place where the temple was, was the center of sacrifice under the Old Covenant, as long as the temple was there. But 1 Peter tells us something about the temple. That since the first century, since the ministry of Jesus Christ, there is, in a very real sense, a new temple. And that we are that temple. Each one of us, individually, a stone within that building. And that we are put together, that is, built up into put together, joined together, mortared together, chiseled to fit together into a dwelling place for a holy priesthood. So when we answer the question, how does the world see us? We are really asking the question, what does our priesthood look like to the world? See, priests have a very specific job. Priests offer sacrifices to God on behalf of people, on behalf of human beings. That's what priests do. They offer sacrifices to God. Nobody could come to the temple, bring his sacrifice, and do the sacrificing. They had to give their sacrifice over to the priests who carried out the work of making the sacrifice. The priesthood did the ministry. That is, they served the people on behalf of God. How did they serve the people? They took the sacrifices from the people and made the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. So here we stand, a holy priesthood. We are right at the point of focus. The point where blessings flow from God to people and sacrifices flow from people to God. We are that conduit. We are that priesthood. So when I ask the question, what does the world think of the church? Are we really that way? What I'm really asking us is, How do service for God and blessings from God flow through us? Is that only for the church? Are we only to be priests to one another? And when God blesses through us, is it only so that we can escape from the world? One of the answers was, hey, look, the world sees us as We go into this place together, we share these obscure, strange things, and then we go back off into the world and live our life. Is that who we really are? Is that who God's called us to be? No. We are, in a very real sense, the city of God, which is nothing without Zion, the place where the temple is, the temple being the place that God causes his glory to dwell through the whole Old Testament. Through the new covenant, we are that place where God's glory dwells. 
And just as in Psalm 48, all the people, all the kings of the earth would walk past and see the temple and marvel and tremble. That's how the world ought to see us. When the world looks to us, they ought to see God's provision, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's holiness. Well, let's move on to verses 3 through 7 of Psalm 48. Verses 3 through 7 say, God in her palaces, that is, God in Zion's palaces, there's only one palace on Zion, it's the temple. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. For lo, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by together. They saw it. Then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in alarm. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth with the east wind. With the east wind you break the ships of Tarshish. An interesting thing. This is remembering. Remembering God's faithfulness. This is remembering who God is, how he works, what he's done to preserve us as a nation. And the nations round about all knew it. Do you remember when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness, coming up to the land? It became evident that God had done awesome things through them. He destroyed Og and Sion. Remember those guys in the wilderness? Destroyed armies before the people of Israel as he was leading them around the wilderness in order to purify them. Brought them to the Holy Land, to the very edge of the Holy Land. And the people in the Holy Land started going, we have reason to be afraid. Because this people's God goes before them. And we need to try and build a relationship with them in order to stave off the fierce anger of their God. So God is calling them to remembrance in this psalm. He's calling them to remember this is what happens. Remember how the Lord provides. Remember how the Lord is gracious to you. Remember how he protected you in the past. For all of these things happened. These kings came by. They looked. They saw. They feared. They trembled. They panicked. They ran away. Even their ships were destroyed. And let's look at 1 Peter 2, verses 6 through 8. For I believe this is an exact parallel. So this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice cornerstone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. 
For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. This is none other than the same thing that we can imagine as we consider what was it like when the temple was on the top of Zion, the tallest peak around, and people from everywhere could see it. For the whole city was on top of these high hills and surrounded by these valleys. What was it that kings perceived, that nations saw when they looked and beheld the temple and remembered God has cared for his people. He's protected them. He's revealed himself as faithful, as true, as powerful, as able The question is this, if we are the temple, then what do they think of when they look at us? Why not these same things? A crutch rather than a provision. Right? Something to prop up the weak instead of heal. I think we just need to stop for a second and ask. Why is that not the case? Why is it that the world doesn't look at us and think those things? That's where awesome things take place. That is a people that God loves. Look, all the nations around, they had their own gods. They worshipped things other than the Lord. And yet, they had to admit something different in that place. Something terrifying in that place. Something awe-inspiring in that place. Something incredible for those who followed that God. Nebuchadnezzar saw that. Nebuchadnezzar saw that. He was, up until his time, You've got to read through the book of Ezekiel and you'll see it. He was cruel. We've talked often about how um, the Assyrian Empire was vicious and cruel in battle and was tortured and enslaved nations, destroyed men, women, and children. It was terrible. They were, they were brutal. And in the book of Ezekiel, what it says is, God says about that whole thing about Assyria invading Israel and then later Nebuchadnezzar coming and taking over and conquering Syria. says, you thought it was bad. Just wait. I'm going to bring a worse to you. More brutal, more cruel. And yet this guy, after a while, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, the cruel Nebuchadnezzar, the brutal, he bowed his knee to the Lord in recognition of the kind of things that Psalm 48 says, those kings who passed by saw the temple and knew. God can do that. God can do that through us. 
That's who we are. That's our birthright. We are that people through whom God reveals himself today. We are that temple, which is a home for a priesthood that reveals a God who is fearful, awesome, terrible, merciful, loving, kind, protecting. Let's look at verse 8 in Psalm 48. Verse 8 in Psalm 48. So yeah, so you probably get figured out by now. We're going back and forth a few times. Verse 8. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God, God will establish her forever. Same things are said about the church. Same promises made to David about his kingdom. That's the church. Promises made to David but fulfilled in Christ. So the question is, have we? Have we heard it? Have we heard those same things? Have we seen those things? When we look into ourselves, is that what we first see? Are we a stronghold, providing safety, shelter, healing, peace of mind, and heart to those who have been battered by the kings of the earth? Because Zion was never intended to be a place of exclusion. The prophecies all say, all the nations of the earth will gather there to worship the Lord. Zion does display who God is, and rightly so, but not so that they can fear and tremble, but so they will be moved to worship God. So when the the world looks at us, what do they see? Do they see a stronghold? Do they see a place where they can escape from all the things in the world that batter them by the daily grind. A place they can escape the decay of sin. Do we offer peace? A place of respite? Do we offer safety? Why does the world see us as unloving, uncaring, judgmental, backward, proud, unchristian? And what will it take to reverse that view in their sight and to present a face that returns praise to God and calls out praise to God? When the world looks at us today, it should say, Great is their Lord, and greatly to be praised. Behold the beauty of his temple. Do we receive and extend mercy? 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think we need to evaluate. We need to look at the way that we see the world. How do we see the world? Do we love the lost? We've already talked about how they see us. What are their judgments? What are their value descriptors of us? But how do we see them? We haven't answered that yet. We see them as sinners. We see them as rebellious. We see them as those who deserve judgment. We see them as unworthy to be in our presence. Don't we? Don't we? Today's, today's hot button topic is, has been for a while, and I believe will remain for a long time to be the whole LGBTQ community. So ask ourselves, the people who are in that lifestyle, what do we think of them? Have we really become a place of rules? Or have we become a place of grace and mercy? Have we become a place where we say, if that's your lifestyle, you're not welcome? <clears throat> Trapped in pornography? We don't need that influence here. <clears throat> Chemically addicted? Yeah, you're probably danger to our children. Don't bother coming around. Have we become that? Have we become what the world sees us as? <clears throat> like I said, this is a conversation we have to have. This is a conversation we have to have. <clears throat> I heard an interesting thing. I haven't checked it out. I just heard it this morning. That Luke is so full of people eating that you can't get away from it. Because of the things identified in Luke, basically in, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to, sitting down at, or coming from a party. And as a result, he was seen as a drunkard, a glutton. But he was around people who needed to be saved. He carried with him grace and mercy. He carried with him and invited into his presence. 
and even left those who were comfortable with his presence and went into the presence of people who were not like us. Well, not like us anymore. We were like that, right? But we left. We got out of there. Is that why the world sees us that way? As isolated? As insular? I don't think I have all of those answers. Except that I am a sinner saved by grace. And I can say that about myself in this culture, but I cannot say that about them. Because this is a world in which there is no sin. This is a world in which sin is ignored, recognized. You know what they do? They take the idea of sin and say, well, that's for the Christians. For those strange people who isolate themselves from the rest of us and speak a language we don't understand and get together, and they haven't really thought through this whole thing. They haven't realized that addiction is a disease. They haven't really realized that you know, their gospel is about white male privilege, keeping women down, keeping minorities down. That's the way the world sees us every time we talk about sin. So how do you present the gospel in a world without sin? Because the key thing about the gospel is it destroys our sin through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Like I said, I'm not trying to tell you I have all the answers for this ongoing conversation that we need to have among ourselves. But how do we do it? How do we do it? We need to be talking about this. We need to be who we were made to be. Well, let's go on and see what the rest of this psalm has to say about it. Verses 9 through 13a of Psalm 48. Psalm 48, verses 9 through 13a. We have thought on your loving kindness. See, we meditate on God's loving kindness. We have meditated on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces. Do we do that? Do we... As the city of the Lord, as the temple of the Lord, do we who populate that city and enjoy that temple, do we look around and see the faithfulness of the Lord? When we do testimony Sundays, we do exactly that. We invite ourselves to recount what the Lord has done for us. 
we look at the beauty of what he is building in us. We recount that it is he who builds. It is not we who build. It is he who makes us into what we ought to be. We have nothing in ourselves that offers what it takes to become righteous. He is righteous. He has put his righteousness on us. Do we do that? Do we walk about and meditate on the blessings of the Lord? I know we often say that we need to meditate on God's word. Amen. Let it always be. But it's God's word that calls us to look at what the Lord has done. Who has he been for us? What has he done for us? What is he doing to us? All for the sake of his name, that glory and honor might be returned to him by our mouth, by our way of life. But let me go further, deeper. When we look at the ramparts of the city, when we look at God's judgments, when we walk by Zion, when we meditate on God's loving kindness, are we so self-focused that it's only about what God has done for me? Or do we look out and go, wow, look what God's done in the life of every person in our congregation. Look what he's doing. Look how he's building this up. Look how he's bringing us together into something more. Look how he's calling us to serve to one another, serve one another. Look what he's doing in order for the, his name to be raised. Look what he's doing in order to reach the lost beyond us. Who, as they march by, look and go, something awesome there. Let me read the second half of verse 13, and the second phrase in verse 13. That you may tell it to the next generation. Meditate on God's loving kindness. Praise his name to the ends of the earth. Remember that his right hand is full of righteousness. Be glad, children of the Lord. Rejoice at God's judgments. Walk about. Look. Go around. Check out her towers. Count her towers. Who is God raising up to lead others? Consider her ramparts. What are the entranceways to the temple? Go through her palaces. Look at the little different ministries that are all carried out here so that you may tell it to the next generation. God's faithfulness. What he's building. What he's turning us into. What he's trying to do through us. Tell it to the next generation. When we do that, I think we have to stop thinking about our own children and grandchildren. Nobody's going to do that. We're all going to think of our children and our grandchildren but not when it says the next generation. The only reason we look to our children and our grandchildren is because they are immediately under our influence. 
But let's look at the whole next generation. Why don't we look around in the, in the temple of God, look at what he's building into the lives here, into the little, the small groups, the little fellowships, what he's building into our, our ministries as we care for one another, as we reach out, as we reach into places where hurricanes come ashore and, and start to minister to the needs of people there, even in the smallest of ways. Let's look to the next generation of people who will be sitting in these pews. When we're gone, our children may still be here, but chances are they'll move out somewhere. They'll still be in the kingdom. But who's going to fill these seats? Those are people who are not here yet. Those are people out there who look at us and say, judgmental, closed-minded, backwards, misogynistic, self-serving, legalistic, unchristian. That's who's going to be filling these seats. Because that who is going to be walking past and being ministered to by God's, ministered to by God's righteousness as it is lived here among us. As it becomes Loving to the lost as it becomes less judgmental and more grace-centered. For it is by grace that we have been saved. So think to the next generation of believers. As is befitting of priests. Bring gifts to God according to his word, work, and goodness. And verse 14 of Psalm 48. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us till death. So here's the thing. I've raised a lot of questions. You've answered some. We all have a pretty good understanding, I think, of how it is in this world to live as a Christian. It's what it like. It's what it is like. It's not what it has to be like. God can redeem me. He can restore me. There's no one out there he can't reach in that way. And we as a body are looking together for God's guidance in this transitional time. We've been talking about it for four or five months now, and it could very quickly get old. But we have to keep tender. We have to teach ourselves to remain tender and to be seeking 
God's guidance together. As we figure out what does it mean to live as the body of Christ in this world today, what does it mean to extend mercy and grace to everyone out there who's living the lives that we would be living if Christ had not gotten a hold of us? What does it mean to restore one another to a place of honor, even here within the fellowship? It's a conversation we need to be having. We need to be hearing about the conclusions. We need to be putting into practice what it is the Lord is building us into and calling us to be. And what that means is, as we see more and more new faces arrive on our doorstep, what that means is God is bringing new resources into his mission. Whatever we have been, we need to let go of. We need to place it all on the table and say, God, give it all to you. Tell us what to keep. Tell us what you want us to keep. And we are very much in that place. And so I want to encourage you. 8.45 on Sunday morning. We pray together for that exact thing. What is it God's trying to do? What does he want us to become? What is he building into us? How is he nurturing us to succeed in what he's calling us to do? How do we all fit together? How do we relate to the world? We're praying about those things every Sunday at 845. Come on in. Come on in. And we will be that spiritual house that Peter speaks of. As God builds us. He's building. You can't look at it and say he's been at it 2,000 years, the church is done. No. Not at all. We have, to, we have to be sensitive as if we were saying, this is all brand new. What do you have for us? So stand with me and we'll pray along those lines.